Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody holding up out there? Hope everybody's continuing to do well. Stay safe, active, positive, productive, healthy, etc. As we continue to fight this fight. So if you're looking for a little diversion in your day, you've come to the right place to listen to some sports talk. And I'll be more than happy to provide it to you here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. As this is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who have been with me for now, 126 episodes. I welcome you guys back. It's Monday, April the 20th in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here over the course of the next hour is as follows. The NFL draft kicks off on Thursday. Highly anticipated draft. The virtual draft that will be unlike anything we've ever seen. Lots of rumors. Lots of speculation. Lots of intrigue. Especially at the top of the draft. And to me, the most fascinating story revolves around a one Tua to go Valoa. All of that between the possible trades, other news and notes throughout the National Football League I'll discuss later on. Also some news and notes throughout Major League Baseball. The possibility of no sports in the year 2020. Based on some information that I gathered and was able to decipher over the past week, it certainly looks like it's a very bleak forecast when it comes to any type of sports being played, but you'll be sure and certainly won't want to miss out on what it is to have to say about that. Anytime you watch a documentary film, especially on a subject that you're familiar with, and with last night's premiere of The Last Dance coined by Phil Jackson, which was brilliantly coined when you think about it. And everything that followed the 97-98 Chicago Bulls as they were going for their sixth NBA title in eight years back in the 90s. When you're familiar with a certain subject, and as sports fans, especially if you lived through those years in the 90s with Michael Jordan and the Bulls, the point of investing time in watching this documentary is that you want to come away with something that you never knew existed. And what we saw these first two episodes last night If that is any indication of what lies ahead for the next eight episodes, then boy, we are going to be in for quite a ride. And I'm going to be fascinated to watch every step of the way. And even though it's going to encompass pretty much the whole Jordan era, if you watched last night and you got a chance to see that, whether it was him growing up as a boy, getting his competitive nature from his brother, his days at North Carolina, being a Tar Heel and, of course, winning the national title there in his freshman season to those early days as a Chicago Bull, whereas we all know that the Bulls were pretty much a basketball Siberia for most of the time leading up until the days of Michael Jordan when he arrived on the scene in Chicago. And one of the things that I took away from last night, even prior to watching all this, was... How did this stay under wraps for so many years to the point where they were going to release this last March? I remember watching the trailers for it and a little bit of buzz about this last season and it being in a documentary. I certainly anticipated it back then and it was put under wraps for another year, obviously until it was premiered last night which was originally supposed to be premiered after the NBA Finals, but of course with everything that's going on in the world, this was the perfect time to bring this to light for everybody to talk about, even if it's not around the water cooler at work or with your buddies at a bar. But with Zoom and the way technology is, I'm sure all the buzz this morning is this documentary and it's going to be here over the course of the next five Mondays. And what I watched last night Certainly took me back down memory lane, especially as a teenager when Michael Jordan burst onto the scene in the NBA, when they showed that footage there in November of 1984, it was actually November the 7th, and I was in the building 
with two buddies from high school at the time. That was my 10th grade year. I was a sophomore in high school at that time. And to be able to watch Michael Jordan live for the very first time at Madison Square Garden was not only a thrill, but it was a memory that's indelible in the brain. Watching him in the warm-ups, dunking the basketball, him and Orlando Woolridge put on a show for the ages that if we had cell phone cameras and video cameras on our person at that time, those videos would be posted on YouTube amongst the many other people who were there that night. And the one thing that I got from watching that game was thinking to myself, I was like, wow, this could be the next guy. We knew all about the hype in college. Of course, when you think about Michael Jordan, you think about the championship game, him sinking that shot against Georgetown. The four corners, if you remember, which was insanely popular. The style of play that Dean Smith, the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels, him employing that on the court where you had the four corners and there was always going to be that one guy that was to go in for a dunk, which Jordan did many times. And it was something that as a college basketball fan or even as a sports fan, you certainly knew what that was all about. But the takeaways from last night, and there were plenty, they could pretty much take up this whole podcast by going through all the things that I got to learn about last night. But I'll go through some of them here and give you a little breakdown just from my perspective on some of the things that were touched on in the film last night. The first thing I'm going to think of is when Jordan was the opening scene where you just see his back and it looks like he's in a mansion somewhere in Miami. To me, the tone was already set right there. Now, we knew Jordan was going to be front and center in this documentary to the point where he actually got final cut. And when you found out that he had his fingerprints all over this thing, the first thing that I thought of was... Is there going to be anything negative about Jordan throughout the course of this 10-part documentary? Still remains to be seen, but if you're going to ask me right now, after watching these first two episodes, I'm going to say a big giant no. Will there be some things that come up? I would hope so. Now, if Jordan had final say on this, who knows? He wants to, I'm sure, paint himself as rosy and as close to perfect as possibly can be. And you got to understand that he is Michael Jordan. So with the filmmaker who's doing this, and there's a guy, I believe his name is Jason Heher. So I hope I'm pronouncing that right, because you know how I am with names. You know, this wasn't Spike Lee directing it. This wasn't a big-time filmmaker that was behind this project where maybe they could somehow, some way, play a little tug-of-war to say, come on, Mike, we got to put this in the film. We can't leave this out. They're right, this may not show you in a good light, but at the same time, we're trying to tell the story here. So with Jordan having the power over this you would think that we're not going to see anything negative about him so you may have to take that with a grain of salt for the Jordan hater or for the person who's not a big fan of Michael Jordan as to why some of this may not be in the film but again we still have eight more episodes to go that's number one I'll start from the top on down Jerry Reinsdorf who is the owner of the Chicago Bulls the one thing that I didn't like from his perspective was having all the power put to Jerry Krause. And I get that most owners, especially at that time, aren't as hands-on like the owners that you may see today. And of course, I don't have to go through the list of them in each of the sports. If you're a sports fan, you pretty much know who I'm referring to. But you're at the end of the day, you still are the owner of this team. So when Jerry Krause comes out and says that this is going to be the final year that this team is going to be brought back and put together to go for another NBA championship and another three-peat at that. If you're Jerry Reinsdorf, you you had to have stepped in to say, wait a second, I want to win four in a row, five in a row, six in a row. If that means I got to keep this team together, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And pretty much he punted his thought and decision to Jerry Krause, who is the GM of the team. And for him to say, Reinsdorf that, oh, I wanted the team to come back. I wanted them to be here for the long term, but it was Jerry's decision. To me, that's a bad job on his part. And we understand that that was 22 years ago. Most owners back then certainly didn't want to have the power or the influence over the GM. He pretty much wanted to have the GM do his job, stay out of the way, which is good, and you want to see that with most owners. But when you have a special 
and as dynamic as a team as this one. A dynasty that we probably won't ever see in the NBA. And right, we could talk about the three-peat of the Lakers in the early 2000s. And we could also talk about the Spurs dynasty, which to me isn't really a dynasty because it's been spread out over 20 years. If you want to look at that 20-year as a time frame of how successful and how great the Spurs were, absolutely, you could say that. But when I think of dynasties, I think of teams that have won not just three in a row, teams that have won four in a row and more. When you talk dynasties, I'm thinking of John Wooden and the UCLA Bruins and what he did in the 60s and 70s. I'm thinking of the Montreal Canadiens winning five straight Stanley Cups in the 70s. I'm thinking of the New York Islanders who won four straight Stanley Cups after that. The Yankee dynasties of yesteryear or even of recent vintage, the 96 to 2000 Yankees when they won four out of five. To me, those are dynasties. And this Bull dynasty to think they actually could have won more. Forget about the years that Jordan weren't there when he went off to play baseball. But knowing that they could have brought this team back again, but it was all on Jerry Krause where, let's face it, he certainly does not come through in this documentary in a pleasant light. Some of it, I'm sure, rightfully so, and some of it may not be as warranted. As Michael Jordan had picked on him from time to time, talking about his weight, talking about, hey, let's do some layups, but we got to bring the rim down. And with Jordan, you know some of that is in jest, but you also got to look at it as some of the, the truth that's in there. And you could paint the picture of Jordan being the badass or baby, I don't want to say the bad guy, but someone who may have rubbed Jerry a little bit the wrong way. But you also got to remember, Jerry Krause was a guy that going back, and which was a great story that Jordan told, going back to that game in Indiana in his second year as his team was trying to make it to the postseason, how they had that minutes restriction because he had the broken foot in Golden State and here he was coming back knowing that they want to make a playoff push but the ownership and the GM were certainly trying to pull the reins on that because they didn't want to have a Michael Jordan getting hurt or getting injured knowing that this was a long-term investment And even if they made it to the postseason, that they weren't going to go far that year considering you had the 86 Celtics who were arguably one of the best teams of all time. And we saw what happened there in that first round with the certain clips there. Jordan, the 63 points, the 49, and game two, the 49 points in game one. But for him to come out, Jordan to come out and say that I want to get put in this game and Stan Albuck didn't do so. And at the end of the game after the Bulls won on a shot by John Paxson, they went into the locker room to celebrate and Stan Albuck, who's the coach of the Bulls at that time, had to lock the door where Jerry Krause was on the outside trying to get in there, but knowing that that was the beginning of the end between the relationship of Jordan and Jerry Krause. So, of course, they couldn't stand each other. And Krause, despite Bill Winnington, the center of the team, said that he was a great guy. He certainly had nice things to say about him. There in a few sentences in reference to their GM, But at the same time, he's the guy that pretty much broke up this team. That's all there is to it. And we could also get into the Scottie Pippen thing, which back then I remember him being the sixth highest paid player on the team. Also 122nd overall in the league, which was an absolute farce. And unfortunately, when Pippen signed that contract in 91, the seven years for 18 million. Now, before people fell out of their chair, especially the younger Folks who are watching this, back then, seven years and 18 million is a lot more than anybody could ever imagine. It was a whole different world. That's 29 years ago. And Pippen, let's face it, he certainly shortchanged himself and his agents when it came to that contract. And even though he wanted to renegotiate and there was pretty much no incentive by ownership or by management to go ahead and rip up that contract to give him a new one. They're like, uh-uh, you're going to play this sucker out. And if you happen to be a free agent and want to go elsewhere, then so be it. And that's what pretty much they were telling him. And Pippen didn't act 100% on this. He was certainly at fault where Jordan called him selfish, where he didn't get the surgery at the end of the season on his foot and waited to the start of the regular season to do so. And even though some of that may have been deserved, where Pippen should have gotten an extension on his contract, 
But the way he acted, the way he would say things towards Krause, coming across as a louse, just petulant, was certainly not a good look on Pippen's part. And I could get, he's frustrated, I'm not in his shoes. He's being overshadowed by Michael Jordan, we get that. But at the same time, he certainly could have acted a little bit more mature about it, considering he had been in the league at that time 10 years. You know, this isn't a guy three, four years into the league, and he wants to get his, and he has his hands up looking around saying, all right, it's going to be like that, then I'm going to take this into my own hands. So despite the lack of respect by the Bulls' ownership, by Jerry Krause in particular, Pippen certainly could have went about it a different way and handled it a lot better than he did. And even, like I said, Jordan called him selfish, and Jordan had every right to call him selfish. Because Jordan was a team guy. I know a lot of people may not think that because they look at him as a ball hog and he wants the spotlight on him, but the guy is Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest player ever. But the few other things that I didn't know about and I was certainly fascinated by was during that 86 playoff opening round series with the Celtics and Bulls and how Danny Ainge went to play golf with Michael Jordan in between games one and two. And there was some trash talk being thrown around between the two of them and how Jordan came out with the 63 in a losing effort in overtime in game two. The first thing I thought of, back then, a lot of the players didn't fraternize with the others like they do today. I mean, today it's absolutely sickening if you ask me. Too many handshakes, hugs, and I get you want to have some sportsmanship. I get that you want to have respect with other players in the league. Totally understand. But when it came to off-the-court stuff, Back then, that was unheard of. And that was one little tidbit that I certainly didn't know about. As well as Jordan in his rookie year, in the situation where he was in a hotel, I believe in preseason, and he knocks on the door, and he hear whispers behind the door, and they say, oh, it's the rookie, let him in. And all he sees is drugs on one side, women on another, alcohol, you name it. And Jordan at that point said, turned his back and walked right out which was a sign of things to come because as a 21-year-old rookie wanting to fit in with the veterans or wanting to fit in with your teammates, more often than not, how many situations have we heard where that player becomes a part of it? And like he said in in the documentary yesterday, if the cops showed up, and even if he didn't do anything, but because he was associated with that group, it would have been found guilty as charged. So that was something that obviously I didn't know about. I'm sure a lot of the public didn't know about when it came to Jordan that rookie year. Also, during that year where he rehabbed after the broken foot, him going to North Carolina, playing one-on-one, three-on-three, five-on-five, and the Bulls not knowing about that. Could you imagine if that was 2020? People would be in an uproar over that. Going behind the team's back, not working with team physicians. And Jordan was a guy who said, hey, I just wanted to go home. If he was going to be out for 64 games... And now on the back end of his rehab, he thought, why travel with the team? He's just going to work out there. And we understand the press, the way it's covered then is certainly a lot different than the way it is now. And even if your name is LeBron James, and we've seen LeBron James do that over the years, and I'm certainly not trying to make any comparisons. When he was with the Heat, when he wanted to take a couple weeks off to work out or to, as a matter of fact, when he was with the Cavaliers, I remember the one time where he was nursing an injury and he went down to Miami and worked out down there for a couple weeks, which made a lot of people shake their heads as to wonder why he was doing that. Why couldn't he rehab back in Cleveland? But again, going back to the coverage, if that was covered today, you can only imagine that would not only lead all these hot take shows and podcasts and things of that nature, but it would be the story that would have legs from here to eternity because of who he is. So I found that fascinating as well. The competitiveness, we all wonder how where he got that from, Jordan, and we found out that it was through his older brother, where he felt his father was trying to pit against him at times. So therefore, that just drove the stakes even higher for him, no matter what. And when you see that video of Jordan dribbling the basketball with his son with his left hand and wanting to beat him, and I get it. I I totally know where he's coming from as I shared that story a few weeks ago. And again, not to throw my hat in the ring to be in the same sentence with Michael Jordan, but 
playing ping pong with a six-year-old and wanted to beat him. And not even just beat him, wanted to destroy him. It just goes to show the type of competitive nature and fire that he has. And I can certainly relate to that. Because whatever it is that I want to do, I want to win. I don't play just for fun or, ah, this is just for kicks. No, if we're playing something, I don't care what it is. Hopscotch, Scullies, Connect Four, Chess, Scrabble, Basketball, Home Run Derby, you name it, I want to win. So those were the takeaways for me from watching it last night. Next week, it looks like they're going to touch on their feud with the Pistons. When they went back in time, as you could see, they had traded Charles Oakley to make that big trade for Bill Cartwright. And that was uh, right in the summer of the 88 season. So from the 88, 89, 89, 90, 90, 91, that's when the Bulls and Pistons were certainly going at it. And Jordan, that was a big hurdle for him to get over. Dennis Rodman coming onto the team, as you saw last night, it was all about Michael Jordan in the first hour and the second hour as well. Scottie Pippen led off the second hour, obviously with his tearful speech there at the start of the 97 year when he was hurt knowing that this could be his last year and him wanting to get traded and how that was all brought about. And even with the way he behaved, you really surprised that he wasn't traded. And I'm sure there's got to be a little bit more to that story because I bet Krauss wanted to get him out of there as fast as he could. But you would think Jerry Reinsdorf probably said, if this is going to be it, I want to have Scotty on this team. Now, again, there's still eight more episodes to go. I'm sure there may be some revelation in reference to that, but fascinating stuff all around. And as I said before, I just can't believe how this was under wraps for so many years. NBA Entertainment was behind it. To, for them to get the access of that team at that time, wh- what could you say? It's, it's the Chicago Bulls. Those guys are rock stars. And all these years, it was almost like it was hidden somewhere and they had this footage and they said, hey, let's make a film out of this. Did anybody at NBA Entertainment, maybe they were waiting for the right time? Who knows? You would think they could have waited 10 years after that to put this out. But, you know, 22 years? It's a long time. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm going to be looking forward to it, obviously, over the next four weeks. I don't know if I'm going to lead every show with it. I figured I'd lead this show in particular only because it was highly anticipated. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. And now that the first two episodes have been viewed to the world. I definitely wanted to throw in my two cents about it. And it certainly was a trip down memory lane. I can't wait to see what the next few weeks has in store. And again, there's a lot to digest there. I'm sure they're going to touch on Jordan, obviously going to play baseball, the death of his father, the gambling between games one and two in the Eastern Conference Finals in 1993 against the Knicks. You're going to hear, I'm sure, about Dennis Rodman next week. Him being a part of the team, memories on those Piston teams that beat the Bulls early on when Jordan was trying to get over the hump. So there's a lot of different storylines that are going to be brought up here that if you followed those teams at that time, you're going to say to yourself, well, they have to bring this up. But what about that? The 72-10 and 10 team, you know they're going to go deep into that season as arguably the best team in NBA history. So they're just getting warmed up here in reference to the story and it's going to be fascinating to watch and I can't wait to see it I forgot who said it on Twitter last night but they could I believe it was Kyle Kuzma he said they could have aired all 10 hours of it straight from 10 p.m. till it would have been early this morning and he would have watched every second of it and you know what I'd second that that's how good it was so at least we have that to delve into over the course of the next few weeks the story is Chicago Bulls there in the 90s. Now, as we move on to the NFL and the draft, this is one event that's not only highly anticipated due to the times and the environment that we live in, but it's going to be fascinating from this regard, not only just the storyline, as I mentioned from the top, regarding Tua Tagovailoa, the Alabama quarterback, but how this is going to be viewed on a national stage with Roger Goodell in his basement, reciting all the picks, getting the information, the webcams that are going to be put up everywhere, no war rooms. I'm sure they may have one camera in one room with maybe the coach. Now remember, they could have up to 10 people in one room. I don't think you're going to see that because I'm sure 
somebody's going to slaughter them to say, hey, social distancing, and why are there eight people in a room when there should be, obviously you don't want to have more than 10 people in a room at the same time, but as many people are going to watch this, it's going to be interesting how this plays out on television just from a technological standpoint. You think it's going to be fine, there shouldn't be an issue, but again, with a lot of these video hookups, this being in real time and shown live, you wonder, I said this a couple of weeks ago, you hope you don't have a Steve Harvey Miss America slash the 2017 Oscars where Roger Goodell gets the wrong card or gets the wrong information and he recites it. I'm not trying to make a prediction, people, but stranger things have happened. We've seen strange things happen and why would it be any different here since the coronavirus pandemic has rocked not only just the sports world, but of course the entire world. This is arguably the Biggest sporting event since the middle of March. In fact, it's probably the only one. You can't talk about free agency that started with the NFL season on March 18th because that's not an event. And now that you're going to have this, a lot of people are going to be attracted to it. Even the casual sports fan. It's just something to watch. And I'm sure they're going to yawn and they're going to be bored out of their skulls. But at the same time, it's Live TV, and it's something that you can at least sink your teeth into. Now, to get to the draft itself, over the last few days, a lot of these mock drafts, and I don't really go by them because you never know what's going to happen with trades. You never know what's going to happen with certain players' stock falling. There always seems to be one player in that first round that doesn't go possibly where they would uh, expect to go. And that one person in this draft could be Tua Tagovailoa, who, as I said at the top, is the most fascinating storyline here because we all know the talent that he has. We know that he's a number one overall type talent. We all know that it's not going to be the case as Joe Burrow is going to go to the Cincinnati Bengals uh, by way of the LSU Tigers. But when you look at a lot of these mock drafts and how it plays out. It looks like it's going to be Burrow 1, Chase Young, the defensive end from Ohio State 2. And where it could get possibly dicey is between 3 and 7 because with the other two quarterbacks that are at the top of the draft, Justin Herbert from Oregon and, of course, the aforementioned Tagovailoa, you wonder whether Detroit will trade down as a team may look to move up, whether you're the Miami Dolphins who are in desperate need of a quarterback, and we all know has not seen a quarterback of any type of productive or franchise-leading capability like we've seen since 1999, and that's the last season of Dan Marino. The LA Chargers, who are in desperate need of a quarterback and moving into a new building next year, if there are going to be games played, and more to talk about that later on. But Anthony Lynn, the coach of the team, Thinks that Tyrod Taylor is not a stopgap guy. He feels as if he can play quarterback in this league, which I think is a huge mistake. But the Chargers also have to be in the mix here and wondering which one of those two teams will be willing to trade up to secure their potential franchise quarterback. How I look at it, Detroit, they're not looking to get a quarterback. Now, they certainly have a big advantage because with them and even the Giants for that matter, where... A few weeks back, Dave Gettleman, the GM of the Giants, mentioned that they were, quote-unquote, open for business. But when you have Detroit that's ahead of them and certainly could get a lot more than the Giants could ever ask for unless you have a team that's super desperate that moves up to the four spot, but it's not going to be five or six because I'd be very surprised if Miami move up to the Giants spot or even Detroit spot because the Lions, as we know, have a quarterback in tow as Matthew Stafford, who's been a fixture there for years, and the GM Bob Quinn had come out and said that Stafford's going to be our quarterback moving forward. Now we all know things could change, and that could get kind of tricky, whether he's blowing smoke, whether it's the truth. That all remains to be seen until they make that selection there come Thursday night. But all talks about the corner from Ohio State, Jeff Okuda, being drafted there. And then with the Giants... That's tricky too because a lot of people think that they should select an offensive lineman and rightfully so to protect their franchise quarterback that they drafted a year ago and a one Daniel Jones. But some of these mock drafts 
have Isaiah Simmons, the Clemson linebacker, going there, and the Giants could certainly use a player who could rush the passer. So you know quarterbacks, for the most part, aren't going to be drafted number three, number four. So that leaves five and six, the two teams that absolutely need quarterbacks, and the Dolphins and Chargers. Now, whether or not the Dolphins choose to go Valoa certainly remains to be seen. You would think the Dolphins are going to choose one of these two guys as quarterback, either Tua or Justin Herbert. Some of the mock drafts you see, again, you take it for what it's worth, have Herbert penciled in at the number five spot. And then the Chargers, some have picking the tackle from Georgia, Andrew Thomas. There's others that have them picking Derek Brown, who is the Auburn defensive tackle, who a lot of people compare to Warren Sapp. And you even have some rumors out there that, and not that they have a plethora of picks, but that you could see Bill Belichick trying to move up in the draft to a spot to where they could possibly draft to a to go over lower. Maybe not in the top 10, because as you look at some of the other teams, whether it's Carolina, Jacksonville, the Jets, those teams aren't going to look for a quarterback. So maybe if they get up to about 11 or 12, I believe the Jets are 11 now that I think about it. But if they could get somewhere in the 11 to 15 range, and we all know Bill Belichick somehow, some way, he'll pull a rabbit out of his hat. And could you imagine him moving up that high, mortgaging his whole draft, which is most likely not going to be the case, but getting their franchise quarterback and a guy that was under the tutelage of Nick Saban, who, as we all know, Saban and Belichick have a relationship that goes back three decades. So tell me that wouldn't be the upset of the draft if Bill Belichick will shock the world and have a guy ready to replace Tom Brady with the former Alabama quarterback. It wouldn't surprise me. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. Let the Patriots suffer for a couple of years. Let them have Jared Stidham. Let them be the guy or even if they want to bring in Cam Newton or Jameis Winston, whomever. But that's where it's going to be fascinating. Because we all know Tagovailoa has the talent. We've seen him win on a big stage, coming off the bench and beating Georgia in that championship a couple of years back. And now, as he's just days away from being drafted, we just don't know if he's going to be 5, 6, 12, 17. And we get that his health is going to be a major issue here. Because as we've seen in the past, anybody who has a significant history of bad injuries, and he has bad ones, the hip, the knee, shoulder, you name it. And we don't know, as great as a town as he is, if he's not going to be healthy here, and a GM is going to select them, especially if you look at the Dolphins as five or even the Chargers as six, and the season begins, and by week four, he is on the shelf or worse on IR, that GM might as well have his head on the chopping block because he's going to be the first one out of that building. So to me, that's why I feel that this whole Tua dynamic going into the draft on Thursday is going to be fascinating. I mean, how could it not? There always seems to be that one guy that either should be at the very top of the draft and he slips down or the one guy who has the great talent but has had a lot of off-the-field issues. Warren Sapp comes to mind and 1995, there's always that one intriguing person, Randy Moss in 98, Aaron Rodgers, of course, in 2005. There always seems to be that one guy that the stock continues to fall and drop, and then they become a success story in the NFL long term. Now, do I see any trades happening here? Of course, any trade could happen at any time. Can Detroit trade back to get some picks and still pick a CUDA if that's the guy that they have? their eyes on. So if that means that Miami or the Clippers are going to move up two or three spots in order for them to get a CUDA, it'd be smart for them to do so because they'll get a ton of draft picks. Now, to me, if you're those two teams, why would I trade up knowing that those guys aren't going to select a quarterback? And that also includes the Giants. So I would just keep all my cards. I would hope and pray, or you can still make those phone calls. Who knows if Detroit will bluff? Who knows if the Giants will bluff? 
But it's a business you would think that they're going to say, no, we're going to draft this guy. We're certainly not going to go ahead and select one of these two quarterbacks. Also, the Niners have stated that they're open to trading their first rounders. Now they have a 13 overall in that trade with the Colts for DeForest Buckner. And they have their own pick at 31. What are they looking to do to try to move up or to maybe get more picks? Well, they've certainly put their offer out there. So it's a matter of which team is looking to bite and see what they could do to improve their team. Jacksonville is also looking to shop Leonard Fournette, it seems. Now, Fournette, although he's a guy who played 16 games last year, he had an illness in Week 17 and didn't play that final game. But for Fournette, who has been productive, but also has had his history of injuries in Jacksonville for the couple of years that he's been there, and also has been a little bit of a headache, if I'm the Jaguars, I would just bottom out. Start over. They did so by trading Nick Foles to Chicago. Obviously, Jalen Ramsey last year. They got rid of a couple of players here so far this offseason. They have a defensive end that they may look to re-sign in Yannick. I can't pronounce his last name. Nguake, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. But the team is certainly right now in disarray. And knowing that Minshew is going to be the guy moving forward, why keep Leonard Fournette? I get that's Jacksonville. It's a team that certainly was that close to making it to a Super Bowl a couple years back. And there may be some talent there, despite it being a shell of its old self, but I would just start anew. Ship Fournette somewhere else. Try to get anything in return while the stock is as high as it possibly can be. And then take it from there. So that's pretty much a lot of the rumblings that you'll hear over the course of the next few days. And certainly, I'm sure there's going to be a few other things that pop up between now and then. And we all know this is a very heavy draft for wide receivers. And we talked about the quarterbacks. Other than that, I mean, you have very good defensive players there that are going to be taken at the top. And I'm not going to sit here and share with you guys that, oh, well, here's my sleeper guy. This is the one that I'm going to Deem is my sleeper. As we all know, the sleepers are open for debate. Unless you're watching college football week in and week out, and Lord knows I am not. I'm not going to come on here sounding like the expert, knowing that I haven't watched a down in any of these games that these players have participated in. I mean, how phony is that going to be? And even I can watch all the tape and read all the storylines, etc., whatever, And I can tell you who the hot guy is, absolutely. But you know what? I'm not going to do that to you. But I will say this. If there's going to be one sleeper in this draft and somebody that has gotten zero attention, I'm not even going to say little to none, but who certainly had a very productive and very good college career who I think that if he goes in the third round, fourth round, fifth round, is going to be a steal, is going to be Jalen Hurts. That's a guy who is not your conventional Sleeper, because when you think of sleepers, you're thinking of a player that's played at a small school, that has had some big numbers, that may have a big motor if they're a defensive player, that may have that 4-2 speed that a team is looking for as far as a wide receiver is concerned, or a running back that certainly had a great combine that has moved up the ranks, that went to a small school, or didn't play against big competition. Those are the prototypical sleepers, and I get that. But the one guy... And I'm not trying to make Jalen Hurts out to be the next Joe Montana. So let's calm down there from that front. But for a guy who's had a very successful college career, who certainly did not play as well and wasn't a huge factor at Alabama despite winning championships there, because remember, Tua won that championship that he had to leave against Georgia. And it came from behind, and we all know what happened. But then went to Oklahoma, Carried his team, had a big year, was in the talk for a Heisman Trophy, and now that he's this close to making it to the pros, chances are he may end up in the third round or even lower. I don't think he'll go anywhere past the third round. I'm sure there's going to be one team that's out there that's going to take a chance on him, and I wouldn't be surprised if that one team is going to be New England. Because we all know Bill Belichick, again, you can't outfox him. And somehow, some way, he'll find his man. I'm sure he's watched a lot of tape on this guy. And remember, played at Alabama, 
Nick Saban knows him well. So that's what we have as we look forward to that. And I'll be just very interested to see how this all plays out on TV with the virtual feel. Are we going to see the fireplace of Roger Goodell in the background? Are we going to have what looks like a podium? Is he going to be sitting at his kitchen table? All that stuff. To me, I find a little bit interesting. So, And he doesn't have to worry about crowds booing him this year, which is good. So I'm sure that's a relief on his end. So that's what you got there with the football. Also, one last thing I'd be remiss to say. Von Miller. Testing positive for COVID. Is in good spirits. Quarantined. Doing what it takes. Said he felt something in his throat. And then here he is now. Pretty much under house arrest like the rest of the country is for coronavirus. Obviously, we want to wish him well, speedy recovery, etc. And then I'm going to segue to this. The notion of no sports in 2020. Now, in these last three to four weeks, all I want to do is just be real. I'm not trying to paint a negative or pessimistic picture here. Because a lot of people, including myself, of course you miss sports, you miss games. That's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about what's going on. Where when you think about it, we would be into the second week of the NHL playoffs. The opening weekend of the NBA playoffs would have concluded yesterday. Obviously, you'd be well into a baseball season. You would have had the draft, which everybody's talking about now. But it would have been a lot ramped up considering it would have been in Vegas. And the specter of doing it at the Bellagio or whatever they were going to do it at. So yes, we all want sports back. But the thing is, when you hear what happened with Von Miller and you wonder with the NBA and NHL wanting to conclude their seasons and get their postseasons underway and the baseball season wanting to kick off the one thing that's scary and why I think there may not be any of the four major sports to be played and that includes football and college football and I'm going to get to them in a minute is because Without a vaccination and without any type of pharmaceuticals or therapeuticals, whatever it may be, where people have to be quarantined for 14 days, how could you resume these leagues? And even though everybody can be tested, whether it's every other day, weekly, whatever it is, but all it's going to take for one player to come down and be sick, a coach, assistant coach, equipment guy, Ball boy, locker room attendant. That's all it takes. Because if one of those particular people have it, what are you going to do? You got to shut the thing down. So if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, and forget about the players, but let's just say one of the assistant coaches or one of their officials, whatever it may be, whether it's a GM or and we get that they may not be in contact with the players all the time, but that's all you need to hear for that to come down the pike. And then next thing you know, oh, geez, now what do we do? <laughs> the only thing you can do is suspend operations again. And we know basketball is not a social distancing sport. Same for the NHL. Though Wayne Gretzky thinks that these sports are going to kick back up in the summertime at remote places and without fans, of course. But when you have Von Miller, a guy who is a Super Bowl MVP, a top pass rusher in this league has actually made the all-decade team. And football isn't until another five months. But when you don't have any type of remedy for this thing, and again, it's not a two-day flu. It's not something that, as we all know, over the course of 48 or 72 hours that you're going to be fine and then back into the game or back into the lineup you go. It's not going to be the case here. 14 days minimum on the shelf. That's it. See you then. And then hope that you'll be 100% and ready to go. So if that happens to one person in your organization, what does that mean for the rest of your organization? Especially somebody who's in close contact. not saying the owner, the owner may not be around, even the GM for that matter, but you're going to have people around the team. Whatever the entourage is, when you go from city to city, or even if they do this remotely, between players, coaches, medical staff, etc. 
And this is why I think sports isn't going to come back anytime soon. I think the only two sports that are going to be played will be golf, which the PGA already set their schedule from June on. They were like, heck with this. We're going to go ahead and plan it out anyway, despite the fact that tournaments are being postponed, suspended, or canceled throughout the globe. And also tennis, despite Wimbledon not being played. But the U.S. Open right here in Queens, we all know they come here late August into September. If it's going to be played, it's going to be with no fans, which I understand is going to be the chagrin of everybody here in the Northeast that goes to the tournament every year. But that's the world we live in. Because at least you could social distance with those sports. And right, even though in tennis, you're going to have your judge who sits there at center court but you have your two players and you'll have the ball boys and girls in the back trying to keep their distance maybe instead of having three boy uh, ball girls or ball boys you may have two instead and therefore you could have a tournament when it comes to tennis and the same for golf where it's just the obviously the players and your caddies and yes you're going to have to have officials on the course as well but they'll keep their distance whether that means they need to wear a mask, whatever. But with those two sports, you could actually see them coming back at some point this year and be able to watch something that at least you could whet your sports appetite, even if you're not a fan of those sports, but at least it's something. Whereas with baseball, and they could talk about social distancing on the field, whatever, but come on. When you have the catcher and umpire within feet of one another, And then when you have runners on base, especially at first base between the first baseman, the first base coach, and whatever runners on first, there's always going to be, at some point in the game, contact, not with all the players, but with some. And all you need is for one of the players to come down with something, and then you got to shut that down. And then with football and college football, the information that I read from last week is that there is a possibility Whether it's likely or not, it remains to be seen because there's still some time. But decisions need to be made by the end of May as to when the college football season is going to start. And the NFL is going to have to follow suit with that as well. For two reasons. One, with college football, they have to have the kids ready to go, prepared. And they have a window where they could suspend their summer practices to the point of up to five weeks before kickoff. Anything more than that? Then they're looking for trouble. So what may normally be eight weeks, let's say from July 1st to September 1st, because the season usually starts on Labor Day weekend, or let's say the last week of June. So if this coronavirus pandemic bleeds into July, first week, second week, etc., there's going to come a point where they're going to have to say, "Uh uh-uh, we can't go past this point, because if not, then we may have to push this season until late September or early October, which I'm sure college football doesn't want to do, but if they have to, they will. But that's problem number one. But the second problem is the potential second wave of this virus. So imagine when you start a season, and let's say college football, the season starts off fine. September, whatever that day is, third. And then next thing you know, we're now in early November where their season is just about done because it's usually the week before Thanksgiving or right around Thanksgiving when the regular season ends. But it's the November 5th and the second wave comes. And again, there may be some therapeuticals or some pharmaceuticals that could take care of this, not a vaccine. But now you have a second wave of this and then you have to shut the season down. And that goes for the NFL as well. So even if the NFL postpones their season until October 1st and they have some time to play around with because even if their season ended with the Super Bowl at the end of February or early March, they would still sign up for that because it'll be before March Madness. Not that that matters at any point because the NFL, you could play it anywhere at any time against any other sport and people are going to watch that above all. But when you are able to have some flexibility there for the NFL and for them to do that, it's certainly a positive. But then the thing is you got to worry about is if you start a season and now you get into November, into the bulk of your season and then you got to stop and then what are you going to do can you suspend for two months and then come back in february to pick up week nine week 10 week 11 and then take it from there 
That's the danger of this thing. And as we've seen so far with these seasons, with especially the NHL and the NBA, right now they got to be shaking in their boots a little bit. As we know, the country is still on the proverbial shutdown until May 15th. Obviously, the officials that run the states and, of course, the president, they're going to make an announcement, you would think, the week leading up to that date. And who knows where we're going to be at that time. This sucker certainly isn't slowing down. And I get this isn't the rosiest and sunniest picture that anybody would could ever imagine. And remember, this is not even just about sports people. It's about just everyday life. About going to a restaurant, going to a movie, going to a museum. And in this case, forget about going to a sporting event because how many people in the American public, although they're dying to watch something, especially when it comes to sports, but are they going to be the first to run to the ballparks or the stadiums, arenas to watch these games being played, but knowing that you have to sit next to somebody where you don't know whether or not that they have the coronavirus? It's something that is not only just inconceivable, but it's unimaginable to think. And when you look at the landscape of sports, I just don't see, even with the weather warming up and all the rumors about the virus of trying to survive in warm weather, man, I'll say if and when it does slow down, there's certainly not a guarantee that the world is going to be right again, that everything's going to be okay, that everybody's not going to be symptomatic, asymptomatic, uh uh-uh, that this is all gone. And we don't know that. And that's why I think this is going to be an uphill battle for these commissioners in sports, for the high-ranking officials who determine in the other sports whether or not to go ahead with tournaments and have these events taking place. Fans or no fans? Are these coaches, are they going to wear masks? I, it's, I tell you, man, it's... I wish we could put a finger on it. I wish I could say to you guys that I could say July 1st, everything will be back to normal and away we go. Now, barring something unforeseen or something that's going to turn the tide real quick, then we could say, all right, great. Let's go ahead and do it. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. To quote the great Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes, but this one is certainly going to be a long shot. Because you know what's going on out there as far as vaccine. We're not looking for another year. And I tell you, it's it sounds dire. And yes, it does. But that's the truism about this thing. We just don't know. So therefore, I'm going to expect the worst and hope for the best. All right, a couple of uh, Major League Baseball notes. Most of them are on the sad side. And I tell you, man, the... Sports world has been rocked by all these deaths here. Uh, Hank Steinbrenner, I'll start there, died at the age of 63. We all know the Steinbrenner family, going back to his father, George, and what he meant to the Yankees. But him passing away at the age of 63 had a lengthy illness. It was noted that he was a chain smoker, and he just turned 63 on April the 2nd. So sad that he has uh, passed on. Thoughts, prayers go out to the Steinbrenner family as well as Damaso Garcia, who was a Yankee farmhand back in the 80s and then played most of his career as a Toronto Blue Jay. He died at the age of 63. And then Jim Fry, who was manager of the Kansas City Royals back in 1980, as well as the Cubs in the 1984 season, passed away at the age of 88. So sadly, you had those three baseball personalities go. And then Stephen Pierce, who was the World Series MVP in 2018 for the Red Sox, he retired after a 13-year career. And it's weird how you think 13 years. You know, he's a guy who was pretty much a backup spot starter type who made it to the mountaintop, not only as a champion, but also a World Series champion as he, what did he do in that World Series? Hit three home runs, had eight RBIs, had crazy numbers, but also goes off into the sunset saying that the 2018 Red Sox didn't cheat. Even though there have been accusations abound with Alex Cora, especially in his days in Houston. So he refutes any idea that the Red Sox of their championship year had cheated. 
certainly remains to be seen. And obviously the investigation has not come about and we get there have been more important things in the world that's been going on. But Rob Manfred and company, I know they're going to have to come up with something soon, whether or not that they have anything on this team or, or if they didn't. So who knows? That may be something that has kind of been swept under the rug at the moment, but will certainly resurface at some point. So we'll see if there's any truth to what Stephen Pierce had to say. And to wrap up here, my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, sadly again, Willie Davis, the Green Bay Packer Hall of Famer defensive end who died at the age of 85 last week. He was hospitalized last month with some kidney failure and pretty much probably led to his passing, although it wasn't disclosed as to what the was the contributor of that. He was a guy that played on five championship teams under Vince Lombardi, including the first two Super Bowl winning teams. Before sacks were even a stat, it was believed that he would have accumulated at least 100 sacks, if not many more. So Willie Davis, thoughts, prayers go out to his family. The Hall of Famer dying at the age of 85 is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is the NASCAR driver who was a star in the one Kyle Larson. Now, I wouldn't know who he is if he fell on me, but he was banned by using a racial slur during a virtual race last week. And although he did apologize and came out and said all the right things, but we all know in this climate, you just have to know better whether he said it in jest, whether he was said it with some meaning or purpose behind it. But uh, knowing that uh, any type of slur, no matter what it is, is not going to benefit you. So therefore, he is my zero of the week. So that'll do it for this podcast, but that won't be the only one of this week. I'll be back later on in the week with another one. Still working on a guest, but chances are if I do not get a guest, you'll be certain to hear me talk about what I'll follow up in on my podcast two weeks ago, which was episode 123, when I was talking about my experiences on my team's biggest victories and going down memory lane as far as what was the euphoria and the great feeling of winning a championship where you mostly invest all your time, energy, and effort into this one team. Well, we all know there's a flip side to that, and that flip side happens more often than not, and those are the tough losses that I had to endure as a fan. And that one you certainly won't want to miss because there are quite a few of those and quite a few memorable ones. So we'll have some fun with that, although it's in a losing effort from my teams. But we'll take a trip on the memory lane on the dark side as far as my beloved teams and suffering their toughest losses that I've had to deal with. So that will be later on in the week. And as always, people, I certainly implore you to go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, or even on my website at jreels.com. If you could go ahead and do so, All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the other podcasts that are out there. And of course, since I'm a one-man operation, doing this for the love and for the entertainment and enjoyment for you guys out there who love sports just as much as I do, again, I want to increase the visibility of this podcast to generate interest with those who are not familiar with this podcast or are unaware of this podcast for the former athlete, the current athlete, the sports writer, the blogger, the broadcaster, so I could get them on to join me to share their experiences on what it was like to participate in their field of sport, whether it was on the field or in the booth or behind their laptop, writing about the stories that we love to follow. So it would be a tremendous boost if you could go ahead and do that. And it literally takes seconds, people. Uh, As much as we have downtime and we sift through our social media feeds and watch Netflix and things of that nature, you could please take out a couple of minutes just to do that. I would sincerely appreciate it. Also, you could hit me up on any of my social media accounts if you want to send a question, comment, some criticism even, also some praise if you could do so. And you could do the same thing with the rating and reviewing on the social media platforms or on the podcast platforms, as I mentioned. You could hit me up on Instagram at jreels or the jreels podcast, which is strictly sports. On Twitter, jreels1, just a number. On my Facebook fan page, the jreels podcast, or the old-fashioned way, the jreels podcast at gmail.com. Please send me whatever it is that's on your mind. I'll be sure to follow up with you guys, whether it's on any of those platforms, because as you all know, 
I am sincerely grateful and thankful for you guys to listen in week in and week out or on occasion or whatever it may be. And please share this with those who you know that may love sports, like sports, or casual sports fans, diehard sports fans, whatever it may be. Because as you guys have been listening to me, whether it's for one episode, 5, 10, 20, 100, or even 126, you know. You know I love to talk about everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Rules Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until later on in the week, and until next time on the J Rules Podcast, on the flip, baby.